0: Thanks, Mike. Uh, did Jesus ride a dinosaur? Have you ever thought about that question? It's kind of maybe a silly question to you, but it's, it's, uh, it's kind of maybe more impactful than you might think. If you go with a strictly scientific reading in Genesis 1, it says that on day six, God created all the land animals and us. So if you go with a strictly scientific reading in Genesis 1, then, then dinosaurs roamed the earth with humans. So then they were, of course, on Noah's Ark. I don't know what that looked like. And they got off Noah's Ark, and then, of course, they were around when Jesus was around. And if dinosaurs were around when Jesus were around, then, of course, he rode one, right? I mean, he walked on water and, you know, multiplied bread and raised people from the dead. So he saddled a T-Rex for sure. That's the thinking. That's the question that, that we have to ask. When we have a strictly scientific reading of Genesis 1, then we uh, believe the earth is only six to 10,000 years old, that snakes talk, that women were created from the rib of a man and ate from a magic tree. So then you get to science class in college or high school or even middle school, and you find that the vast consensus of scientists disagree with all those things. So then you're confronted with this quandary. You're confronted with like, well, to be a person of faith, to be a Christian, I got to believe in the strictly scientific reading in Genesis 1, so I'm going to be against or oppose science. And I will argue today that's a foolish decision and one that we don't need to make. We have less of a robust faith because of that decision. Or you go to the other extreme, and you're a big believer in science, and how so you're wired, and you, you see the dad, and you're like, everybody's saying the same thing. This has to be the case. And so faith, the things that I was raised to believe about Jesus riding dinosaurs and whatnot, can't be true. Such things like the resurrection. So if I'm going to be a person of science, I must abandon faith. And we've all seen that. Maybe that's your journey. Maybe you're just coming back. Maybe you're here to ask that question. Your kids will encounter it if they're raised in church. And so then you abandon faith. And I would argue, and I will today, that being a scientist without faith leads to being way less a scientist. And and it's not a robust life. We're going to argue today that they work together. The question we're going after today is, do you have to choose between faith and science? Uh, Let's deal with the lowest hanging fruit. Did Jesus ride a dinosaur? No. So we'll, we'll move on from that. So we're in the ser- series called 10 Questions, and we're going after the 10 hardest questions that keep us from seeing that the way of Jesus is good and beautiful and true. That's what we're arguing. That's what we believe into here as a community, that if we live out the way of Jesus as it's put before in, in the scriptures, then it will be good and beautiful and true. And yet we have so many of these questions that come between us and that experience. And so in this series, we looked at, you know, is is the the Bible and slavery that issue? Does the Bible oppress women or does Christianity oppress women? Does Christianity oppose diversity? Can we take the Bible seriously? All these questions are online with a plethora of resources uh, for you to dig deeper on any of these questions. And I hope you're benefiting. I hope you're doing the work. If your experience in the series is I'm going to come and listen to John or one of the teachers talk about these questions, and and that's going to be it, then you're going to have a limited discipleship experience with that. So we're kind of kicking you off here. We're giving you the catalytic kickoff to then go after these questions if they're still haunting you and they're serving as a barrier to your faith. We've mentioned many different uh, resources. One that Denise mentioned last week is How Not to Read the Bible by Dan kimball and it's a really really excellent book and and he has a whole section devoted to this question in his book and he actually calls that section jesus riding a dinosaur here's a little uh, satirical children's coloring book picture i found um there it is jesus riding a dinosaur even though we know dinosaurs survived the flood we don't know if jesus rode one he probably did and then there's coloring hints. I love that at the bottom, kind of a, a satire. Here's another, I kind of deep dove on this. Here's another picture of Jesus holding a baby dinosaur. Of course, that must have happened. And, uh, and then finally, I've, I almost bought this T-shirt because it's pretty awesome. And uh, notice that in all that we, we dealt with this earlier in the series, it, as, a side, as a side comment, notice that all the Jesuses are like white surfer California Jesus. Again, that's not Jesus. He was a Middle Eastern man, but that's a whole other topic. All right, here we go. Just we're trying to be a little lighthearted. I'm glad today... This series has had a lot of emotional questions. Have you felt that? I have felt that as a speaker. You've seen the tears some Sundays and this and that. This one is a little, I think, a little less emotional. So I'm grateful for that, but really, really important. I was a youth pastor for 15 years, and this is an important one for our students. So let's uh, let's pray. And then Anna is going to come read, uh, do our public reading of scripture from Psalm 8. So if you want to have your Bibles out and read along with us, uh, I encourage you to. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here with us. Uh, Thank you that you love us so incredibly much. On my darkest days, I am reminded that because of Jesus and the work of Jesus, I'm your beloved. And that's it. I don't have to do anything to, to earn that or to prove that. Uh, That's who I am in Jesus, and that's who each of us are as we are created in the image of God and redeemed and made right to be co-imagers together to steward God's creation and manifest glory and cause our world to flourish. Uh, We're grateful for that, God, and may that just sit deeply in our hearts today as we explore your creation and this relationship uh, between science and science. And faith. If this is a barrier for people in the room, if it's a barrier right now in minds and hearts, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active in removing it. We love you and we praise you. Just enrich us as we hear your word read over us. In Jesus' name, amen. all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, and all that swim the path of the seas. Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Anna. So keep your Bibles open if you have them open. And if, if you want to bring them to church, that's wonderful uh, if, you, if you're reading along on your phone. Because we'll, we'll be in this psalm, and then we'll flip to another one here in a hot second. So uh, the Psalter is what it's called, all of our psalms. It's remarkable, considering it's Jesus' prayer book. Jesus was praying out of this book. So it, it does serve as a catalytic in my own prayer life. If you're wondering, like, how do I pray? Try praying the Psalms, and maybe try praying this Psalm. If you if you're familiar with the Psalter, Psalm one through seven is pretty lamenty and pretty depressing. And then after Psalm eight is pretty lamenting and pretty depressing for a while. Psalm eight is like our first like happy Psalm in the Psalter. And so as we're reading, it's a really simple construction. Remember, this is poetry, so let's think of it that way. But it's a simple construction. King David is writing of who God is, and then who we are apart from God. And then at the end, he comes back and talks about who he is in relationship with God. And you can just see that flow right in the psalm. Uh, In the Hebrew, it's the personal name of God, Yahweh. It should be all caps in your Bible. Yahweh, our Lord Adonai, which means basically my supreme master. Um, How powerful is your name in all the earth? Eugene Peterson's The Message. I love what he says in these next verses. He says, nursing infants gurgle choruses about you. And toddlers shout the songs. And I think it's a beautiful way of bringing out this. The world is wakening up, all of us, and all of God's creation to praise God and give God's glory. And then David says, as he sees God's creation and how macro it is and how large it is, he becomes micro. And I think that's one of the things I want us to pay attention to today as we explore what it looks like to consider God's creation and really look at it. It puts us, it right sizes us, it puts us in our place. Uh, so, simply put, he ends with, again, he repeats, he starts with the same line, then ends with it, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and all the earth. So, David's making this simple prayer and the simple song that something about God's world testifies to who God is and reveals stuff about ourselves. So, let's flip forward 11 Psalms to Psalm 19, Psalm 19. You may be familiar with this, you may not. We'll just read a little portion from the beginning. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from him, and yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. and Nothing is deprived of its warmth. If you read poetry at all, and even if you don't, you can see this in verse 1. He has these two phrases working together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. It's important to know the Hebrew word for skies could be translated in some of your translations and maybe firmament, which is a weird word. And we'll come back to this. So let me lay the groundwork. We'll stick a pen in it and come back to it. But when the original readers would have heard that word, they would have envisioned ancient cosmology. And we need to know as we're reading scripture, the Bible wasn't written to us, but for us. So to the original readers, they thought ancient cosmology believed there was a firmament or kind of a vault is another word you may see kind of like an ancient aquarium. That's how they thought the world worked. And so kind of a glass vault that had doors in the vault where rain would come in, so there's water above, and rain would come in sometimes. The doors would open and close. And the sun and the stars and the planets, they were fixed in this vault, and then they moved around in the vault. So the vault kind of served as a protection. And then the vault was anchored with foundations, and then the earth floated on the seas, and they thought the sea was evil and had evil, dark stuff in it. And then all the way underneath the sea was what they called Sheol. And that's where you went after you died. And that's kind of dark and scary and shadowy. This is how the ancient world would under- It's how David would have understood how the world looked and how the world worked. Does this mean the Bible is wrong on science? No. The Holy Spirit comes in and uses humans with where they are and what they understand to proclaim truth about God. So David, he's using the words as he understood how that he wasn't a scientist. He's not writing science in these Psalms. He's writing prayers. He's trying to tell us who God is. So we put Psalm 8 and, and, and then Psalm 19 together, and, and I think they reveal this point, that God's world reveals God's glory. God's world, when we look around at God's world, everything that God has made, which includes you, so look around at one another, you're God's creation. When we look around at everything conceivably that God has made, it reveals God's glory. And glory is kind of a weird term. It's a mysterious word. The root of it in the Hebrew simply means heavy, like something's heavy. And it was used when it was used of people and of God It meant that God is weighty, more weighty than anyone else. God is more significant and more important than anyone else. How do we know that? David said, consider the work of his hands. You want to know God's bigger and weightier and more significant than you? Look at what he's made, including you. Go outside and take a gander. Look around at all that God has made, and it reveals God's weightiness. I think of it as like an art show that God has put on 24-7, seven days a week. And David tells us it's to the ends of the earth. There's nowhere on planet earth, and I've been privileged to travel all over the world, there's nowhere on planet earth that you can go that you won't see things and animals and trees and planets and sun and stars and go, whoa, whoa, God's weighty. He's way bigger than I am. That's kind of the idea in these Psalms. All right, so we're going to really dive deeper into this question. Now, the way I I, I kind of wrote the message today, I think there's certain barriers as we talk about this question that I want to go at. Years ago, we did a series called Things Christians Believe That Aren't True. Anybody remember that series? It was sad because I had like 30 different things to talk about, so we could only get through like 10 of them, so we'll come back. But today, I was thinking about with this question, what are some things that in, in humility, I think that we believe about science and faith and the relationship that aren't true. So I have three things, and we'll get to them. But throughout the message today, I thought as we, if we experience God's creation and God's world, it will reveal God's weightiness and glory, and I want it to happen right here in the room today. So I want to, three times today, I'm going to just take a break and tell you about some of God's creation, some of his animals, some stuff about you as humans, stuff about the universe. How do you guys feel about that? All right, so I want it to be kind of call and response, so I'm going to give you some facts, some funny pictures will come up, and then I'm going to say, and then the people said, and you're going to say, glory to God. Can you do that? All right, so let's practice. And the people said? Oh, you guys are awake. I come from the south, so call and response. I love it. I love when people talk to me from the crowd stuff. Like, let's not get crazy, but you know what I'm saying. All right. All right, so here we go. So we're going to start with camels. How do you feel about that? Camels. So in in Arabic, camel means beauty. Can you believe that? Look at that guy. He's so beautiful. A camel can drink 53 gallons of water in three minutes. In sandstorms, camels can close their nostrils. They can carry 600 pounds In self-defense, they use all four of their legs to fight. Uh, Camels are social creatures. They blow on each other's faces to greet one another. This is my wife and I riding a camel. Look at our faces. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Camels' noises were used for the vocalization of Chewbacca's voice from Star Wars. And all God's people said? Glory to God for camels. Frogs. Frogs can jump 20 times their height. They can grow to a foot long. On average, they can jump 130 inches in one leap. Frogs' uh, gender can be told by their ears. They shed their skin weekly, some daily. 6,000 species of frogs, 170 poisonous frogs. They can hold their breath for six to seven hours. And the common frog is capable of crying. And the people said... Humans, here he goes, this is us. uh, Like fingerprints, our tongue has unique patterns. We're the only species that can blush. Human teeth are the only part of the body that cannot heal itself. 25% of our bones are found in our feet. Growth of our hair doubles on airplanes. Who thought? Fingernails grow uh, faster on your dominant hand. Information in your brain travels at 268 miles per hour. Uh, Your brain has 86 billion neurons and one quadrillion connections with virtual unlimited memory. The brain is not fully formed until you're 25 years of age. Let's remember that uh, for the younger folks. We love you. Uh, The average person will grow 590 miles of hair in a lifetime and 6.5 feet of nasal hair. And the people said... And then finally, the universe. The slant of the Earth is tilted at an angle of 23 degrees. It produces our seasons. Scientists tell us that if the Earth had not been tilted exactly as it is, vapors from the ocean would move both north and south, piling up continents of ice. If the moons were only 50,000 miles away from Earth instead of 200,000, the tides might be so enormous that all the continents would be submerged in water. Even the mountains would be eroded. If the crust of the Earth had had been only 10 feet thicker, there'd be no oxygen and without it all, animal life would die. The Earth's weight has been estimated at six, six tons, that's six with 21 zeros, yet it is precisely balanced and turns easily on its axis. It revolves daily at a rate of more than 1,000 miles per hour. The Earth revolves in its own orbit around the sun, making the long elliptical circuit of 600 million miles each year, which means we are traveling in orbit at 19 miles per second. And yet, Job tells us that God holds the earth in place, suspended by nothing. And the people said? All right, things we believe that aren't true. Uh, the first one is science opposes faith. Uh, this is not true. And here's what happens. So I think it's all about definitions. So when I say, if I were to say to you, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you say, think about science? Just what would that word be? Think about that. What would that word be? Some conceptions that come into your mind when you think about science. Just boom. Well, here's, here's the actual definition. This is from the Science Council. Science is the pursuit and application of knowledge and understanding of the natural and social world following a systemic methodology based on evidence. That's a lot. So I just have defined it this way. Science is a study of the natural world. I think that's a good definition of science. It's a study of the natural world. That's what it is, and that's it. That's not what most of us think about, especially when we think about this relationship We think about a misconstrued definition of science, and this has been referred to as scientism, scientism. When you add an ism to anything, it takes that thing and makes it everything. And scientism says that science is everything, that we can only, uh, well, here's a definition from a scholar. He says that that the belief that science is the only true way to acquire knowledge about the reality and nature of things. Uh, And this is just not true, it's not the definition of science. It's taking science and trying to make it everything. Science is a discipline meant to study through a methodology the natural world that I believe God created. And it has a very tight confines for what it's good at and what it can study. It's not meant to talk about the existence of God or morality or your identity or meaning or purpose. And when scientists step outside of that and try to say science can address all those things, they're overstepping their bounds. And any good scientist knows that. So science is a very narrow field, but that's not what we think about. So we do the same thing with faith. We think faith is blind faith, and faith is not blind biblically. I know I've taught on this again and again and again, but I, it, I, it bears repeating. All right, you go to uh, Hebrews 11, where it's the faith chapter. Faith presupposes reason. We don't have to check our brains at the door, people. And so just look at Hebrews 11. It, says it's the, it defines it as the evidence of things not seen. Evidence is in the definition of faith. And then it gives all these examples of people having faith. Go to Hebrews 19 a and Abraham reasoned that God would even raise the dead. He reasoned. He's using his mind. It's a holistic experience. So someone wants to define faith as reason gone courageous. I love that. So if we define uh, science as uh, that, science is everything and that we can only learn truth from science, which is not the definition, of course that opposes faith. But if we go over here and we we define faith as blind faith, of course that opposes science. But it's neither. And if we see faith for what it is, and science for what it is, they don't do this, they do this. And they work together and they complement one another, which makes sense. Let's go back to uh, Psalm 8.3. David says, When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. That Hebrew word uh, to consider means to look at closely or to inspect. It's a scientific word. He's telling us to be scientists. He said, look closely and inspect what God has created and you will see God's glory and your faith will be expanded. They're meant to work together. Jesus does the same thing. Go to Matthew 6. You may know this passage. And Jesus is talking about worry and how we're all prone to worry. And he's, he's teaching through an antidote to worry. And he says, I want you to, to, to look at the birds of the air. It's a scientific word in the Greek look, look at them, study them. And then he goes and he uses a different Greek word. He said, I want you to consider the flowers of the field, another scientific word. Consider, look, Jesus is telling us to be scientists because he knows if we look closely at what God has created, it builds up our faith and it reinforces us. So science and faith do not oppose each other. They work together like this. And they strengthen each other if properly understood. All right, second thing we believe that is not true about this question is that the Bible is filled with scientific inaccuracies. Now, I could go on and on for an entire series and talk about these, but let's just talk about one. And I think it's the most pronounced one, and we've already kind of dealt with it a little bit, and that's Genesis 1 and 2. So we, we approach it, and if you, if you have questions about the reliability of Scripture, I point you back to Nije, Dr. Nije Gupta's message a few weeks ago, and he's a New Testament scholar about the reliability of Scripture. We're not talking about today. Let's assume Scripture is reliable. So when we come to Genesis 1 and 2, we come to the text, and we try to make it a scientific text. And if we do that, then we're left with a world that's only six to 10,000 years old, and we're left with magic talking snake and magic tree and all these kind of odd things that no real scientist will believe in. And so then we're left with this kind of false dichotomy that it does this if we take it that way. But here's why that should not be a problem for us. We're, we're reading it wrong. And we've talked about this a little bit. We need to be better readers of Scripture. I'm convinced that whenever we see Scripture saying things that the vast majority of scientists in the world say are not true, we're misreading Scripture. It actually allows us to have better readings of Scripture. And so we come back to the text and we look at it, and just a few observations. Remember, the Bible was not written to us but for us. So what would the original listeners and audience have understood this to be? They would have understood it through the lens of that ancient cosmology. This vault, in Genesis 1-6, it even uses that word vault. So the, the, the author is just using the way they understood the world. It, it, he's not saying this is how it is. He's saying I'm going to work with what you understand in the world. He's not trying to do a science lesson. He's trying to do something much, much greater. Also, this is poetic narrative. That's the genre. It's not science. Uh, it's poetry. It's telling a story about God. Let's, let's presume we take it as science and we try to read it that way. Well, look at it. If you have it in front of you, look at Genesis 1. You probably know it. It marks out the days each day. Well, the sun was not created until the fourth day. So, but light is already being referenced prior to that. And the world is already rotating. And we know that the sun is important to that scientifically. Every single day from day one on, it says, and there was evening and morning and then the next day. But the sun wasn't created until the fourth day. So if we're reading it as a scientific text, we've already got problems. These people, they didn't know everything we know about cosmology in the world, but they weren't idiots. They knew the sun had to exist to have evening and morning. They're not reading it that way, and we should not read it that way. This text, the early chapters of Genesis was written after the Israelites were kind of set free from Egypt, after 400 years in bondage. And for their 400 years, God's people were inundated with all these false gods. All these gods of sun and moon and stars, these fake gods, these imposter gods. They tried to hold strong, but some of them fell away. The writer of Genesis is writing this text to go back to the very beginning and reminding them that their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, made everything, including the sun and the moon and the stars. That's why the very opening words are, In the beginning God created And this word create in the Hebrew doesn't just mean like design, but give it design and purpose. And you remember that imagery from Genesis 1 that God is hovering over the waters. That word is the same word used as like a mother eagle hovering over her baby eagles. Saying that God is so big and powerful and has created everything and God has set you free. And your God reigns. That's what Genesis is trying to tell us. It's not trying to teach science. That's unequivocally true. Uh, John Walton is an an Old Testament scholar, and he says they would have understood it as the garden being God's temple. And God has come down into his temple with his people to rule and to reign with us in our temple. And then all hell broke loose, right? Genesis 3 and the sin and all that. Well, God is working to reconstruct and restore everything all the way back to what do we get in Revelations? We get a garden again. We get God in his temple ruling and reigning. That's how they would have understood the text. Uh, another little side thing if you insist on a scientific reading of Genesis, another problem with that is the word day. We, we, well, is this a 24 hour day? You're like, well, of course it is. A day is a day, not in the Hebrew. There's like seven different understandings and meanings of the word day in the Hebrew. In the, in the first five books of the Bible, they're all used, some of them mean eternity. Some of them mean 40 days. Some of them mean a season of time. Some of them mean a week. It's not meant to be a strictly scientific reading. Here's the deal. Um, I'm not saying that God didn't create the world in six days. God could have created the world in six seconds if God wanted to do it. But we don't have to insist on that reading. It's not what the text is saying. And so there's no inherent scientific contradiction in Genesis 1 and 2. Are you guys following with me? All right. Just one example, and we could, do, I, could talk, I could do talking snake for another 10 minutes, but that would bore you. I would like, why that's not a talking snake? But anyway, listen to the Cutting Room Floor podcast. I'll, I'll, I'll address the talking snake in that. All right, more uh, God's creation. You guys ready for another one? All right, salmon, when salmon spawn, they return from the ocean to where they were born. Salmon from central Idaho will travel 900 miles, climb 7,000 feet, including vertical leaps of 12 feet, while dodging fishermen and wildlife. Uh, how they find their way home, no one knows. No one knows. And the people said? That's a little timid there. You, gotta, you guys don't like salmon? Come on now. All right. Hummingbirds travel 4,000 miles every year. They take 150 breaths a minute. Uh, only birds to fly backwards for any length of time. There's more than 340 species. They can travel 800 kilometers nonstop. They have no sense of smell but excellent color vision. They weigh less than five grams. Their eggs are the size of jelly beans. Uh, They can fly 37 miles per hour, 60 miles per hour when they're in a courtship dive. And I tried to think of a hummingbird sex joke and I came up with nothing. Uh, And all the people said? uh, Humans, here you guys are. Uh, Face has 43 muscles that can make 10,000 facial expressions. A smile uh, uses 12 muscles, a frown 11 muscles. The jawbone is the only movable bones in the face. Jaw muscles are the strongest in your entire body. And the shape of your eyebrows can predict your personality. And the people said? Here's a picture of our Milky Way galaxy taken by astronaut Reed Wiseman from the International Space Station. He posted it to social media. It makes my social media uh, feed look pathetic. Uh, This is our hood, this is where we reside. The Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years across. If you're going at 186 miles a second, it would take you 100,000 years to cross our galaxy. There are billions of stars in our Milky Way galaxy. If we counted them all one second per star, it would take us 2,500 years. And yet the psalmist says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. And all the people said? Third thing we believe that's not true about this question is that you can't be a Christian and a scientist. Not true. Um, Rice University sociologist Ellen Eklund Uh, wrote the most definitive study on this. It's a really nerdy study, so I'll I'll sub it up for you. She she studied scientists for four years, and she found that only 15% of scientists found there needed to be opposition between faith and science. That means 85% said, yes, there is a relationship. Uh, She sums it up this way. After four years of research, at least one thing became clear. Much of what we believe about the faith lives of elite scientists is wrong. The insurmountable hostility between science and religion is a caricature, a thought cliche, perhaps useful as a satire on groupthink, but hardly representative of reality. And we can see this throughout the history of scientists. I'll just give you a brief, I could go, I love this this stuff, but uh, it's fascinating. Historic Christianity valued the mind and has included some of our very best scientists who have ever lived. Oxford and Cambridge... Were, uh, were birthed to train priests, and, and a lot of times in the sciences. Uh, we go on most of our best universities in the United States, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Notre Dame, Georgetown, Rutgers, to name a few were Christian institutions when they were launched to, to, to train Christians, uh, a lot of times pastors and priests. Uh, Galileo is known as one of the greatest scientists who ever lived, and you may know that he had this argument with the Catholic Church. And that may make you think that he wasn't a Christian. He was very much a Christian. He was deeply steeped in God's word. He was also reading the science and was like, the earth, you know, the sun does not revolve around the earth. It's the other way around. I'm telling you guys. And to his credit, he was right. But he was a, deep follow, a deeply passionate follower of Jesus. Christian scientists, Roger Bacon, William Ackman, they were both Franciscan friars along with Robert Boyle. They launched the modern scientific movement, all followers of Jesus. Albert Einstein was a theist who believed a spirit far greater than humanity embedded laws in the universe. He once said, science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. In his office, he had three pictures that he considered the Mount Rushmore of scientists. uh, uh, Isaac Newton, uh, Michael Faraday, and James Clerk Maxwell. Uh, The first was a theist. The second two were elders in their church. They were passionate followers of Jesus. I could go on and on and on and on. Uh, To modern scientists, you look at an institution like MIT, which is one of the most elite scientific universities in the world, it's packed with Christian scientists, including the first uh, female president, Dr. Susan Hockfield. And then, uh, if you look no further than Dr. Francis Collins, you may know his name. Uh, He is uh, maybe and arguably one of the most accomplished and influential scientists in the entire world. He led uh, the National Institutes of Health. He's just retiring for the last 12 years. He was appointed by Obama, that causes some of you Republicans issues that he was appointed again by Trump. And then he was appointed again by Biden. People kept begging him to lead. He, uh, had, had, he had billions of dollars at his disposal and he led, literally led our world uh, through a pandemic. Uh, he came to faith after he was an accomplished scientist. Because he's looking at the scientists saying like, there has to be a God. And he's a deeply passionate follower of Jesus. I know people that that are friends with him. He wrote a great book that's in the resource section called The Language of God. I highly, highly recommend it. And he's launched an organization called BioLogos, a great website. We put their link in the resource section as well uh, that's just filled with Jesus following scientists at the top of their fields. Um, I love this quote from Language of God. This is what Francis Collins says. Uh, Will we turn our backs on science because it is perceived as a threat to God Abandoning all the promise of advancing our understanding of nature and applying that to the alleviation of suffering and the betterment of humankind. Alternatively, will we turn our backs on faith, concluding that science has rendered the spiritual life no longer necessary and that traditional religious symbols can now be replaced by engravings of the double helix on our altars? Both of these choices are profoundly dangerous. Both deny truth. Both will diminish the nobility of humankind. Both will be devastating to our future. And both are unnecessary. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. And that's an important line because this man mapped the human gene. You might know his name from that as well. He can be worshiped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate and beautiful and it cannot be at war with itself. Only we imperfect humans can start such battles and only we can end them. And hopefully we take a step towards that today. All right, our last time of looking at God's creation. You guys ready? You remember like, glory to God, you gotta bring us strong, call and response. Giraffes, giraffes are the world's tallest animals. Giraffes' necks can stretch seven feet. They have the same number of vertebrae in their necks as humans do, seven. Their legs are six feet long. They give birth standing up. They can run 60 kilometers an hour and baby giraffes use their butts as pillows. And all the people said? Dolphins, I love dolphins. Dolphins have the longest memory of any animal. The brain of a dolphin is larger than a monkey's brain. They're extremely social. Their pods can reach 1,000 dolphins. They have two stomachs. Uh, They find their way uh, through uh, something called echolocation where they make these sounds and it bounces and they find their way. They can shut off half their brain Uh, Seems like humans can do that too. Uh, Can kill a shark using its nose? What? Uh, They can blow water out of their blowhole at 160 miles per hour, and they can recognize themselves in a mirror. And all the people said? All right, human eye. The human eye. We see things upside down, but our brains turn them right side up. The eye is the fastest muscle in the body. It's possible to blink five times in a second. Uh, We blink four million times a year. Now on uh, to uh, our eye fingerprints, or eye prints. Uh, uh, Fingerprints have 40 unique characteristics. Our eyes have 256. The eye functions at 100% all the time without any rest. It doesn't need a nap. If the human eye were to be a camera, it would have a 576 megapixel lens. Uh, Scientists do not know why we cry when we're sad or happy. And all the people said, All right, the universe, this will be our last thing here. The sun is just one of the stars in our galaxy. Our sun is 1,300,000 times larger than the Earth. Out in the southern sky is a constellation Orion. Look for it. Uh, The the shoulder star of this constellation is a star 50,000,000 times larger than our sun. If we had the ability to take this one star, hollow it out as if it were a big balloon, we could put our sun inside of it and then put Mercury circling it, then Venus, then our Earth, then Mars, then Jupiter, all revolving in orbit inside one star that's in our galaxy. The latest estimate of stars in the universe is 10 trillion galaxies, each each containing 100 billion stars. If you multiply that out, that's 10 to the 24th power. That's 10 with 24 zeros behind it. We can see millions of stars with our naked eye. Each of them is bigger and brighter than our sun. Imagine that tonight. With any star you see is bigger and brighter than our sun. If you were to hold out a dime at arm's length, that coin would block out 15 million stars from your view, if your eyes could see that with that power. And yet the prophet Isaiah tells us that God knows them all by name. And all guys, people said? Glory. All right, just short little closing reflections, and then we'll get to communion. Um, we should live more like scientists. That's my, stay with me, stay with me. Uh, the scientific methodology, this is what it says it is. Objective observation, evidence, testing hypothesis, repetition, using reason to draw conclusions, critical analysis, and verification through peer review. Christians should live more like that. I'm just saying, like, we need to, this is what the Hebrew word hokmah, it means wisdom, it means skillful living. I look at scientists and I see how they carry themselves. They're curious people. All my scientist friends are insatiably curious. They're humble. They don't know. They're always wanting to know the answers and they're testing and they're trying and they're failing and they're okay with all of that, trying to find the truth. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, it'll set you free. Scientists are dogmatic on trying to find truth. Scientists are also quick to say they're wrong. This is just truthful. Truthful. That most of their experiments are failures, and they're okay with that. And they're okay saying, I'm wrong, and putting their work out publicly to say, I'm wrong, so they can learn. I see a lot of Christians that are afraid to say they're wrong. Afraid to repent is the word. And then finally, I see scientists just beautifully working in community. Every scientist who does a study puts it out for peer review. That means they put it in front of literally hundreds of other scientists in their field saying, show me anything that's wrong. Like, isn't that beautiful? What if us Christians started to live more like that? We may look less like fools. And if that sounds like personal to you, I'm sorry. I think this is something I've seen in the last couple of years. It's deeply troubling me as a follower of Jesus. Uh, we, uh, can, Christians, above all people groups, are most prone to conspiracy theories. Did you know that? Of any other group. And then I, I read this the other day. 19 out of 20 of the top Facebook pages for Christians. 19 out of 20 were produced by Eastern European uh, troll farms. Did you hear that? That article that you see is produced by some 18-year-old Eastern European kid messing with Christians because they're so easy to mess with. Just because your Aunt Betty posted on Facebook or somebody from spin class posts something doesn't mean it's true. We gotta think more like scientists. We gotta say, where did that come from? Is that true? Let's look at this, let's talk about this. We wanna be people of wisdom. We want to be known as people of hokmah, who quickly say we're wrong, who say like the Apostle Paul, we know in part, we know in part, we want to be committed to knowing the truth. And then final reflection, as an act of worship, uh, we should consider God's world. We should, we should lean in and do a better job looking. This is why years ago, I, uh, I, I launched this yearly backpacking trip with friends. Because uh, when I'm with God and God's creation, something is evoked in me as a worshiper, as a child of God, that I'm just in awe. I'm like a little kid. If you ever would backpack with me, I'm just skipping around laughing all the time. Because I've, I've seen some of those beautiful places in the face of the earth, and I'll come down and be like, oh, my gosh, look at this. This is how I'm constantly like, when I'm backpacking. Years ago, we were at the Olympic Coast, Olympic National Park, and we had this killer site with a fire right there in this little bay and, like, dolphins and, and sea lions are popping up. It was just incredible. And we had a fire going, we had dinner, and then the sky started popping. You know what I'm saying? And it was one of those nights you're like, oh my goodness, this is going to be incredible. We had passed this Canadian fellow earlier named Jesse, and he had a really, really nice $10,000 camera. He was a professional photographer, and we asked him to take our picture and email it to us because we were using you know, iPhones. And Jesse had gone on ahead. He said he was getting some shots. So we start seeing the sky popping, and we say, let's run up to that ridge. And we're exhausted from the day, but I'm like, we got to get a better vantage point. So we haul up to that ridge, and what do we see? We see the full sunset, but we also see Jesse with his waders and his $10,000 camera down in the waves, like a true artist of work. And he's popping around. He's tried not to get his camera up, but he's getting these incredible photos. And he's whooping and hollering as he takes them. I'm not kidding. So we start clapping for him and cheering him on. We're cheering God on. We're cheering Jesse on. It's like artist and artist. And the glory of God is being revealed. And we see how it, like, imperfect we are and how small we are. And it was just an amazing night and an amazing moment. I think there's a picture that Jesse took that came up there. I hope he won an award for that. Uh, he, he's won other awards. Um, we need to be that, Christ followers. Like the world is, God's world is Beautiful. We need to consider it and be scientists. And when we do, we see the glory of God. And you're glorious. Look around at each other. You're creative. Some of you need to hear that today. You're glorious. And we need to tell each other that. Because when we do, it evokes in us a deeper appreciation and awe of God. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Uh, Father God, thank you that you're the creator, God. Thank you that um, this, this just, it does annoy me. I think it probably came across today. <laughs> I hope I didn't come across too annoyed. But this question is just annoying to me, God, because there, there is just not there. There's no opposition. We're meant to work together, God. And uh, scientists make our faith stronger, and faith makes science more robust and fills in the gaps, and it's, it works together in, in beauty. And God, um, may you just remove this opposition. May this next season of life between the church and scientists be a robust partnership of growing together for the glory of God. And uh, thank you for the world that you've created, even as we lead today. I know it's a, it's a kind of rainy, you know, dull day, but there's so much beauty going on. Help us to see the hummingbirds and the, the wildlife and, and the moon when it pops out and the sun when it comes back and even the rain that we so desperately need throughout our seasons, God. Help us to be amazed at that for your glory. Uh, we love you and we praise you. And all guys, people said? All right, so as an act of worship, um, we're going to, as led by our team, we're going to sing the doxology kind of again and again as those pictures come back through. And it's a moment as a follower of Jesus. It's a simple tune. If you don't know the doxology, you'll catch on quickly. But as you sing and take in these pictures, maybe just stop and pray. That's okay, too. And worship God. Feel God's glory. Feel his weight come alive in you as you see his world on full display.